You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. Well, as we studied First uh, John's ultimate paternity test from chapter 3, verses 11 to 8, Last week, we basically asked ourselves the probing question, who is our true daddy? Who is our true spiritual father? Whose children truly are we? And we asked these questions based on John's spiritual testing through the examination of where we're at with righteousness versus lawlessness, where we're at with our resemblance of God versus our disparity, and also through our examination of our purity versus our habitual sinfulness. That as we examine these six attributes, these evidences that are in our lives and in our hearts, that we could truly determine whether we are children of God or children of the devil, as John has been teaching. Now, although this kind of spiritual test can be really raw and revealing and even hard for us to receive, we remember that the whole motivation behind this is love and that it's extremely important for the church to be examining herself and it's extremely important for us to be examining ourselves for not only this present reality that we face every day in life, but also our future eternity to come. And so as John is writing this letter so that we may know that we have eternal life, it comes down to authenticity. It comes down to being authentic and how authenticity then translates into assurance that out of love, John wants those in the church to truly see where they stand before God, because as he already said in chapter two, that it is the last hour And how he doesn't want us to shrink back in fear, but rather to have a bold confidence that we are ready to see Jesus as he is. Friends, there is a great urgency to all of this. There's a great urgency to find out where you stand before the Lord. As John said in in our closing text from last week, in, in, in chapter 3, verse 10, the last verse we looked at, he said, By this it is evident who are the children of God. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, you should have noticed last week that I didn't address the last part of that closing sentence about those who don't love their brothers. And I did that intentionally because it's it's really a transitional statement for the next section we're going to be looking at today. That as the first section of our spiritual parentage was largely focused on one's relationship to righteousness and unrighteousness, our section today really comes down to how one relates to both love and hate. How you relate to loving your brother or hating your brother. Which as John is going to show us here is, is one of the most significant ways that we can tell whether someone is a true child of God or a child of the devil. And so what John is doing here out of love is further preparing his people for what's ahead. He's preparing his people for the authentic reality that to truly walk with Jesus means that you're going to need to prepare yourself to love and be hated. Friends, to be an authentic Christian is to love and be hated. Let's let's, uh, read the text here in chapter 3, verses 11 to 18, and then we'll pray. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 
But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet it closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray. Our God, as we again gather before you, as we have sung songs to you, as we have worshipped you through prayer, and as we now turn to your holy, sufficient, inerrant word before us, the word that you have preserved through the ages, the word that brings life, the word that also condemns, we do pray, Lord, that you would do a deep work in our hearts. Continue to transform us, we pray. For those who may not know you, we do pray that your word would uh, interact with the heart, that it, would, that it would hammer that heart of stone, that you would remove that heart of stone, and that you would give a heart of flesh in place, a heart of flesh that can receive your Holy Spirit, that can receive your word, that can receive faith that is the gift from you, that by your grace... You would save those who don't know you. And then for those who do know you, we pray for further sanctification. We pray that as we discipline ourselves for godliness, that as we put off the old man and put on Christ, that you would continue to change us and in that you would be glorified. And so we just ask that you would use your word this morning to do that in our hearts by your spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, to be an authentic Christian is to love and be hated. And so the true church must be prepared to both love and to be hated. Well, as John just argued in verse 10 that children of the devil are those who do not love their brothers, in verse 11 we read, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. As John is known to be the apostle of love, We've already heard him back in 1 John 2, 7, talking about love. As he already said in, in chapter 2, verse 7, he said, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And what he's referring to about in this message that they had from the beginning was the commandment that Christ gave his very own disciples while he was on this earth. In the Gospel of John, Chapter 13, verse 34, where he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And so as John is setting out here a contrast of both love and hate, his main driving proposition here is that we should love one another. That's the message that we had from the beginning. That's the message that we had from the very lips of Jesus Christ. That's the message that we have right now that we are to love one another. But before he gets expounding upon what that truly looks like, uh, he's first going to turn upon what it doesn't look like. Now he starts out by expounding upon a prime example of hate gone wild. As he says in verse 12, he says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brothers righteous. And then he says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Friends, as we are called to love one another, we also need to be prepared to be hated. We need to be prepared to be hated. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. In the story of Cain, as we have recently been aware of, as we've been walking this summer through the book of Genesis, is a story of paramount hatred. In fact, it was the very first story of hatred in humanity. This comes from the very first family on this planet, the very first son of Adam. Friends, as the apple didn't fall far from the tree, far from Adam and Eve, but in fact fell even further through the fruit of their firstborn son, Cain. Friends, this is the OG story of hate. This is the original revelation of hate and murder to the very core. And so as John says that we should not be like Cain, this story stands out preeminently as the example of the darkest potential of hate within humanity. That as we look around at this fallen, hurting, and hateful world around us, hate and murder isn't anything new. 
No, this has been with us from the very beginning, and in fact, its roots are tied to the devil himself, as Jesus himself says in John 8, as he's saying to these, these Pharisees who hated him and hated his message and wanted him dead, he said to them, you are of the father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And so as John is still on this children of God versus children of devil kick here, as Cain was the very first to so hatefully murder his own brother, it was the devil who was the father of murder from the very beginning, and Cain is his true spiritual son. That's why John says here, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one. He, he was of his father, the devil, and therefore he murdered his brother. And so as the authentic are to be marked by brotherly love, those who are marked by brotherly hate reveal who their true father is. As they join him in hate, in living lives of hate and, and murder against those who love Jesus and his church. And so we need to be prepared to be hated. In fact, as we look at this first section, there are three distinct aspects of that hatred that we can see here. And, and the first is that we need to be prepared to be hated. And some of that evidence is that they're going to hate righteousness. They will hate righteousness. I mean, the whole reason that John gives for Cain's hatred and the ultimate murder of his very own brother comes down to his hatred of his brother's righteousness. If you can remember the story, you'll remember how in Genesis 4, as Cain brought an offering from the ground to the Lord, his brother Abel brought, in Genesis 4, 4, it says, Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Which then causes Cain to be furiously angry with his brother to the point that he murders him. And so as John says here so many years later, and as he commands us to not be like Cain, he gives the ultimate reason that Cain did so by saying, and why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. His deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous, just as the author of Hebrews confirms of the same situation in Hebrews 11.4. The author of Hebrews says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. And so, as Cain hated his brother's righteousness, he really was just revealing that he is of the evil one. His, his father is the serpent. And his heart was with the serpent. And so John says, basically John is saying, friends, the truth is that as Satan hates righteousness, so his offspring are going to hate righteousness as well. And that as that is so ferociously translated in itself into all kinds of hatred that is also propagated towards God's people throughout the centuries. I mean, just think about, just think about those who have hated those of the people of God. You know, as we can so clearly see this world turning upside down and backwards and, and inside out all at once. Think about how the world is, is so accepting and affirming of everything that is evil. Think about how, how quickly it is running to embrace things that were once regarded as sin, but now it's being celebrated. Think about how then with that, the world is also so quickly and vehemently rejecting and hating the biblical perspective and God's opinion of all of these things. As the world is bringing all kinds of sin-affirming sin views and lifestyles and practices that just go against what we would regard as plain, biblical, natural logic, common sense, and absolute truth, the world just outright hates the righteous standards that we're holding to. Just think about how the world hates what we believe to be so plainly true and right and sensible 
And how about this? How about the fact that we believe that killing a baby in the uterus is murder? It's murder. It's not women's health care. We believe that marriage and intimacy is to be between one woman and one man, one marriage for one life. They hate that. The world despises that. They hate that we believe that biology determines gender, that God has stamped that onto our DNA, that that women have two X chromosomes and that men have one X and one Y chromosome. And we believe that determines your gender. You can't change these things. They hate that we believe that young people shouldn't be encouraged to be mutilating their body parts and taking hormone therapies because they feel that they are something other than their natural sex. They hate that we believe in the sanctity of life for our elderly and sick as is making the news waves in Canada. That we believe we're not free to offer death as health care. And so, friends, as we are looking to how the world hates right now, just some real relevant examples, we can go on and on to all of the absolute ridiculousness that's happening today. But the truth is, is the world doesn't want to hear it. Like Cain, the world rejects what is right in God's eyes. In fact, they hate God, and they hate everything about God, and so they will hate the very righteousness that God stands for and the righteousness that we stand for. And so with the hating of righteousness, what also follows with that is that they're also going to hate the church. They will hate the church. As John says in verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Friends, as we're not to be surprised that they hate righteousness, they will not only shoot the message, they're going to shoot the messengers. As Satan hates the people of God, the world hates the people of God. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. I mean, let's just see a show of hands of anybody who has just faced any kind of pushback from the world for your faith. Yeah. The world hates God's righteousness and hates those who would walk in righteousness. Sometimes the world thinks that we're weak because we're following Jesus. Someone thinks that we are weak and feeble if we want to trust in the Bible. We have pressures from from the world around us. How about from the the old crowd that you used to run with? But now you're choosing to walk the righteous path. Think about how they would push back on you. I mean, I had a conversation with a, a young man just this past week telling me how a member of his very own family just outright ridiculed him for believing in Jesus. This is the real stuff. We need to be prepared for that. Beloved church, have you lost friends over following Jesus? Have family and friends turned against you because you choose righteousness? Friends, this goes with the territory of following Christ. We should expect this and prepare for this. Proverbs 29.10 says, Bloodthirsty men hate one who is blameless and seek the life of the upright. Friends, Jesus never said it was going to be easy to follow him. No, to truly follow Jesus means that you are swimming against the stream of this world. You are going against the grain and the current of society. <clears throat> I mean, you ever try to walk upstream in, in a raging river where water is up to your waist? How easy is it to walk against that? It's not easy at all. It's hard. In fact, it's really hard. That's why Jesus would always call on his potential followers to count the costs. He would say, you're going to have to pick up your own crosses to follow me. Meaning that they're going to have to live a crucified life. They're going to have to face ridicule. They're going to have to face persecution. He says in Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Even the fact that family and friends would hate you because of him. He also said in Luke 21, 16, he said, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. This goes with the territory of being a Christian, an authentic Christian. Friends, to stick your neck out as an authentic Christian means that you are now a target of hate. And so in one sense... If you are experiencing some of this, know that this is just further confirmation that you are actually walking with him, that you are actually walking this authentic Christian life. The world's going to hate you. And on the other side of it, if you're not experiencing any pushback from the world, it's good to be asking yourself, why? Why is there no pushback from the world in my life? Am I not actually living this authentic Christian life out? Do the people that I'm around every day actually know that I'm a Christian? Or maybe sometimes all you're around is Christians. And you need to be around unbelievers and see what happens. Now, we don't want pushback just because we're jerky. Right? We, want to be, we want pushback for the real thing. That we're just standing on the truth and we're loving the world with the truth of the gospel and we're willing to die for it. Do those around me even know that I believe? Friends, to be authentic is to not be ashamed of Christ. When you are unashamed, in one way or another, the world is going to hate you. In John 15, 18 to 19, it says, if the world hates you, Jesus said, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You need only to scroll through Twitter or all of the social feeds or just watch the news to see that the world isn't exactly in love with us. They label us the radical Christian right They call us those who are archaic and non-progressive, non-enlightened, misogynistic wingnuts. Friends, as John's church was facing those that hated them from the outside and the inside, we need to expect this. We're going to face this more and more. And so that's why he says, do not be surprised, brothers. The world hates you. And so the challenge for us is that we don't naturally want to be hated. We don't naturally want to be persecuted. No, what do we want naturally? We want to be accepted. We naturally want the world to love us. Or we want to have our own faith and just be left alone. But that is a foreign concept to the New Testament Christian. John says here that that concept should be foreign to us as well. They will hate righteousness and they will hate the church. And then with that, thirdly, as we prepare to be hated, here we also see that they will hate the gospel. They will hate the gospel. Verse 14 says, we know that we have passed out of death into life. That glorious, life-giving salvation that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers, right? This is an evidence of that saving gospel. But then he says, whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. As John's church that he's writing to here just came through a massive schism, as there was fracturing due to false teachers who came in and antichrists who have gone out from them, the fruit of hatred that was displayed in that church was rooted in an abiding in death. Meaning that there were some non-real Christians there. There were those amongst them that were not made alive by the gospel. They were not born again. They were not brought from death into life. They were abiding in death. And in that death that they lived out, there was not love, but there was hate. And as hate was all that they had, they hated their brothers. They hated the church, to which John calls them murderers. 
that as they don't love but abide in death, John says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. According to John, these haters were the walking dead. They are, as Ephesians 2 would say, those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Whoever does not love abides in death. And as death can only produce more death, he says everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And this is the theology of Jesus Christ himself who said in Matthew 5, 21 to 22, he said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So friends, anger and insult and hatred between brothers is extremely serious to God. Just as serious as the physical act of murder itself. And so as John presses the truth here as well, he is very clearly laying out the reality that those who were hating his church, whether it be from the outside or inside, are not true believers, are not true Christians, but they are murderers of the heart. And that in their hating, murderous state, they are proving that they do not have eternal life that is reserved only for those who are truly regenerated, for those who truly believe that these who would have heard the same original message of the gospel that the church had from the beginning were now, in fact, rejecting it to their death. And therefore, they are hating the message They hate the gospel. If you remember some of the background context as there were these false teachers, it was an early Gnostic form of beginnings that were going on there. They were bringing in paganistic ideas. They were bringing in empty philosophies into the church. They were teaching a false gospel about the person of Jesus Christ. They were teaching that a person needed more than Jesus. They needed special knowledge. They needed special insight. They were teaching a false Jesus. They were teaching that Christ wasn't enough. And what they were ultimately doing was teaching that true faith needed more than Christ alone. And so therefore, as they are adding to the gospel, they are creating a non-gospel, an anti-gospel, a false gospel. They were hating the true gospel. Teaching that we need to do more. Teaching that we need to add to our salvation. That Even in the church at large today, if you fast forward to our day, there is a growing hatred of the Christ alone message of the gospel. Many churches today reject the biblical truth that that God predestines, elects, calls, regenerates, converts, justifies, and adopts sinners by grace alone. I even know solid Christian songs that are being changed to, to, to remove this concept of God is sovereign over salvation. Friends, the biggest problem, or one of the biggest problems in the church today is that far too many are rejecting the authority and the sufficiency of the word of God when it comes to the gospel. That far too many so-called churches are welcoming ideas and concepts and understandings from the world that end up leading to death rather than life. These are understandings that are rooted in the word, sorry, rooted in the world rather than rooted in the word. False gospels that tell you that you need to, you need to add to God's gospel. You need to experience something more, that it's a gospel plus, plus, plus. Friends, if you don't have the gospel alone, you don't have the gospel at all. Now, as John's church just walks through the fallout of all of this, as there was such an onslaught of spiritual murder that blew through that congregation, what was at the center of the attack was the gospel. And they focused their attack on the person of Jesus Christ. That's the way that it was then, and that's the way that it will be until he comes back. The attack is always focused squarely on Christ and his gospel. So friends, we need to be careful We need to be careful when we hear someone questioning the sufficiency of Christ. 
We need to be careful when we, we hear of somebody questioning his finished work on the cross. Whenever you hear that, whenever you hear that there's something more that you have to do to have salvation and to maintain your salvation and to keep your salvation, you have to be careful. Whenever you hear someone espousing or questioning anything outside of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, according to scripture alone, for the glory of God alone, friends, you are hearing a message that rejects the true gospel. What you're hearing is an anti-gospel, which is a message that only brings forth death because it is a message that comes from death. And so as John is preparing this church to be hated, we need to prepare ourselves to be hated. Hated now and hated in the future. They will hate righteousness. They will hate the church. They will hate the gospel. And we should not be surprised that the world hates us because the world ultimately hates Jesus. Now that John has now dealt with first here with, with hate and murder and, and it seems to be on a negative tone and, and perspective which we need to hear, he now turns to the positive aspect. He returns to focus on the love that we are to truly have for one another. But as he stated in, in verse 11 already, he said, the message that you have heard from the beginning is that we should love one another. So finally here in verses 16 to 18, he now expands upon what that love needs to look like. That as the church needs to be defensively prepared to be hated, that on the proactive side of it all, on the offense we also need to be prepared to love. Be prepared to love. And so what we see here in the following verses are another three crucial aspects of what this brotherly love ought to look like. And the first one is that we must love sacrificially. We must love sacrificially. He says in verse 16, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Friends, the kind of love that the true gospel reveals is a gospel-knowing love. It's a love based not in this world, but a love based on a full embracement of the gospel story. It's a love based on the ultimate love as perfectly portrayed and modeled and finished by Jesus Christ himself on that cross. It's a love that comes through his ultimate sacrificial death. By this we know love. This means, friends, that we don't have to make it up ourselves. It's not a love that we whip up within ourselves, that we, that we hope to find in this world. No, it's a love that was defined for us once and for all by God himself on one particular day, 2,000 years ago, as God the Father takes his very son, his only son, and he crucifies him out of love for us. As Jesus himself went so willingly our suffering servant, the man of sorrows, to be despised and rejected by man, to be betrayed by his own, to be scorned by the world, to be ridiculed by the Jews, to be beaten by the Romans as he was tortured, whipped, scorned, humiliated by a crown of thorns being pressed on his head, as he is mocked by his torturers, and then as they make him carry his bloody cross through the streets of Jerusalem in shame. Until finally, he reaches the hill of the skull, the place of death, where they, they laid him out on the cross, the cruelest form of death in those days, as they would stretch out his hands and as they would hammer massive spikes through his one wrist and then through another and then through his ankles as they pin him bloodied and broken to that cross, which was the most absolute excruciating pain and anguish, as they then hoist him up on that cross, as his full body weight would, would hang from those nails, placing such stress and, and asphyxiating compression upon his ribs and lungs where, where he hung with the lowest of the criminals 
as those who were to be made example of. They were, they were placed so that the crowds could come by and could jeer and could mock. And they would say, if you're really God, come down off that cross. But that's only half of it. What was even worse than any earthly torture or punishment was the judgment that the Heavenly Father was now to pour out upon His Son. As He, though perfectly innocent, was to be judged as guilty. As He was to be forsaken by His Father. As the Father then pours out that infinite bowl of wrath that every one of us had been storing up because of our sin against our holy God. Where that just fury and anger of God over what we have committed is now fully unleashed upon Jesus. All of our hell upon his shoulders as Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he also says is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then as he breathes his last, and as he declares it is finished, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Out of infinite saving love, Jesus laid down his life for us, for you, and for me. He did that for those who don't deserve it. Those who truly deserve to be on that cross themselves. Friends, if you want to know what kind of love we are to have for each other, that's it. That's the standard. That's the definition. Nothing less than that. That's the way of true gospel love. Even as John also wrote in his gospel in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. We love to sing about this love. As Isaac Watts composed, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? So let me ask you, friends, when it comes to love for one another and love for others, as a Christian, how are you defining it? What's your standard and how are you living it out? Are you extending love only so far as it doesn't cost you too much? Is your love limited to only those who you want to love? Those who maybe look like you, act like you? What are your love limits? Well, what John is saying here to a church that had been struggling to love one another is that all definitions of love crumble at the foot of the cross. That he pointed to the crucified Christ as the standard that we are to love like that. Love like that. That as Jesus was our model of absolute perfect righteousness, he is also our model of absolute perfect love and that in him and because of him that it's nothing nothing less than a self-abasing self-humiliating others first god glorifying life laying down sacrificial kind of love that's the kind of love we're called to and friends i'll be the first to say how i fall short of this how even today, after these years with Christ, how my love can still be stingy and cold and limited, that my love can still be stifled because I love myself. But friends, by example of Christ, love is not easy. Love is hard. By example of Christ, love will cost you even your life. And friends, in John's day, this was a real reality. That as fresh as the cross of Christ was some 30 years earlier, John had seen and heard of many of his friends, his fellow disciples, actually laying down their lives out of that same love that Christ had. It may not be such a present reality for us anymore that we're going to be slayed upon a literal Roman cross, but it should be no less our standard today. That even though today we have such freedom to worship 
and declare the gospel of love and love each other as the church and love each other with the truth. There is no limits to that love. Love has no end in Jesus Christ. We love all the way that we would humble ourselves as Christ humbled himself. As we already studied the book of Philippians, Philippians 2.8 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now practically, how does that example work itself out in our life? Well, it really comes down to putting others first. It's about putting others' needs over ours, just like that Philippians text and context would say in Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so when it comes to the church, that means practically sacrificial friendships, truly caring for one another. We're not just paying lip service, but truly laying down your life for each other, that if someone is hurting, if someone is suffering, if someone is in need, we love them by putting them first. And whatever that means, meeting their needs, whatever it is, James says in James 2.15, he says, he says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things they needed for their body, what good is that? No, friends, we help where help is needed. Just like the early church who would share with anyone who had need, we are to be there for each other. Now, one thing I know that our church does regularly, and it's a great thing, is somebody's sick, somebody has a baby, somebody is moving, somebody needs help, there's often a meal train. That's great. It's great to offer meals. I know even in this last year, if we're looking at evidences of that love within us, we extended love to a Ukrainian family. And even to this day, we're caring for their monthly needs, and it has been such a blessing to be a part of that. But we need to think, what are those ways that we are actually missing out of sacrificial love outside of those things? I thought of an example, just maybe one of it is one of them is sacrificial listening. Sacrificial prayer for one another. Are you leaving enough room in your own conversation to truly listen to somebody else? As somebody is sharing their heart with you, their life with you, Are you truly listening to their heart? Or are you more concerned with what you're going to say next? Your own opinion. How about with the sacrifice of your time? How about when it comes to going and serving someone here? Or maybe even serving in a local mercy ministry. Or maybe serving your neighbor, even though you may be exhausted and tired. How about sacrificing your home? To host new people, to host people from your church, from your church family, within your doors, to make them a meal, to practice true loving hospitality, to then also know each other. And how about sacrificing finances for those who have a greater need? So we could apply this in many ways. But the answer is that we need to just truly stop and we need to ponder the overwhelming beauty and love that is displayed on that cross for us. And then as we behold that beauty, we seek to then apply that same love to all the aspects of our life. And there are limitless ways that we can love sacrificially. Friends, friends, we're living in a world where it's all about me. It's all about my time, my space, my care. But the Christian life is about others. One thing we can't forget is that In Christ as well, sacrifice is always connected to his compassion. And so John says next in verse 17, he says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Friends, we must love compassionately. Friends, sacrificial love is a compassionate love. It means that your heart is connected to it, that your heart is not closed, but it is open. How many of us have a little internal uh, sign that we can hang on our hearts sometimes? Uh, Closed for business today. 
As Christ's heart was infinitely open to us, our hearts need to be open. That we would truly empathize and sympathize with those who are around us. And this example John gives is is very much the same as that example that that James had. But notice how he connects it to the heart. James says, what good is that? But John says, how does God's love abide in him? It's about having our heart connected. That means that it's not just an obligation. That it means that it's not just because I'm supposed to, or I have to, or I should, but that it's because I truly see how much I am loved by Christ and how much he pours his love into me. Therefore, that love becomes real within me and it begins to spill out into others. What John is basically saying is that if you close your heart against him, how does God's love abide in you? Friends, God doesn't want just mere, obedient, obligatory, empty acts of love. No, a Christian is to have a heart connected by love to all that you do. As John Calvin said, he said, where love is wanting, the beauty of all virtue is mere tinsel is empty sound, is not worth a straw, nay more, is offensive and disgusting. That it's not about, well, I guess we should give them a hand, or I guess I should donate some money, or I guess I should help out, but that I really want to. No, friends, Jesus doesn't want, nor does he accept Heartless, empty sacrifice. No, as he said to Pharisees, the Pharisees in, in Luke eleven forty two, he said, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice. And hear this, he says, and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. No, friends, as Christ modeled sacrificial love through his death, it was out of compassion that he did so. It's like when Jesus was doing his earthly ministry, as he looks out into the crowds in Matthew 9, 36, it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Yes, Jesus knew it was the right thing to do, but he no less had his heart involved in that. He had compassion. So when you see your brother or sister in need, ask yourself, does my heart ache for them? Maybe when you see a friend post a recent cancer diagnosis, or there's a GoFundMe for them as they have such great need, do you respond or give because you think you should, or is your heart breaking for them? I mean, many of you know of a, of a recent story in our North Church of a sudden cancer diagnosis of Liddy Deepert. She's a, a woman in her 30s, three young kids. Her husband, Joel, is trying to walk with her through these times as they are facing very uncertain days ahead of what the future holds. I mean, our hearts are just breaking for them. And so it turns into action Even as our own Vivian here, her brother is struggling as he's coming out of this brain surgery. Do our hearts break knowing how hard it is for them and for the family? And then how quickly are we running and devoting ourselves to prayer and to practical help? Maybe on a more general note, when it comes to even in this season, even when we see the homeless or helping the downtrodden or the hurting your neighbors, helping those in need. Do you help begrudgingly? Or is your heart actually broken for them? We're to let that gospel love that is on full display on that cross then permeate our soul as we see the great love he has for us. And that should really just crush our hearts for the rest of the world. And so we love sacrificially. We love compassionately. And then lastly, We must love authentically. John says in verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Friends, if the love of Christ that we claim to believe and know does not move beyond what we just say we believe, it's probably a really good time to have a talk with the Lord. 
It's a good time to get things right. It's time to step back and to recalibrate our heart to his heart. It's time for us to recapture the beauty and the glory of what he has done on that cross. And allow that to break our hearts again, to break our pride, to break our passivity, to break that dullness of heart. No, John says, no lip service. He says, let me see your action. Let me see your sacrifice. Let me see your compassion. Let me see your heart as evidenced in deed and truth. Friends, love has action. Love has feet. Love has hands. Love has a heart. Love is truly exposed in deed and truth. And so as John closes out this section, it's all about truth, meaning it's all about authenticity. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And so brothers and sisters, to be an authentic Christian is to love and be hated. And friends, we can't do this on our own strength. Like John said, we need to be those who have been brought from death to life. You can't truly love sacrificially as Christ loves apart from being indwelled by his Holy Spirit, by being regenerate, made new, reborn. And then as we are reborn, we are to be growing in that, learning to love, putting off the old man, putting on the new man. And then to realize that to be an authentic Christian is to love and to be hated. And so the question is, is are we preparing to be hated? And are we preparing to love? Friends, they will hate righteousness. But we will love sacrificially. They will hate the church, but we will love compassionately. They will hate the gospel, but we must love authentically. And we can only do that in the power of the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God, in the love of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that your word is always true. Your word always does its work. It never returns void. And so whatever work that you are doing in my heart, in this church's heart, in any individual's heart here this morning, May it also be completed. May it also receive a response in the power of the Spirit according to the gospel. May we actually believe that, that it is one thing to say something, but it's another to actually follow through. And so as we focus on this concept of love, this sacrificial love on perfect display in Jesus on the cross for us, we just pray that that would be more real to us and that in that you would also produce authentic followers. And we know that in this, we are at different spiritual maturity and different spiritual stages. That as we are reborn, that means that we are a newborn. And that there are those as well amongst the body who are growing and maturing. There are older Christians in the faith. And so where we're at in our maturity we pray that you would produce the proper response. May we love one another as Christ loved the church. We pray it in his name. Amen.